All right, so uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, tonight's Shaila is really we're going to end up handling in three parts. It's a it's a Shaila that uh, that we received in the in the Kolo, and as I uh, researched the Shaila, so I saw uh, you know some uh, some related questions which I was absolutely certain would be valid precedent for the present Shaila, but then as I uh, researched further. So I realized that there's some very interesting nuances within the, uh, the Shaila itself. And uh, as with many Shailas, so all of the details are going to be specific and the application of those details are also going to be very, uh, very specific. So uh, hopefully we will, uh, we will get through the material and you will, uh, you'll see the, uh, the excitement of it. So the Shaila was as follows. There was a fellow who was an employee by, uh, by somebody's uh, business. And uh, while he was an employee there, so he would get his paycheck and he would look at the pay stub and it would say, your salary, this is how much was deducted for FICA and this is how much is deducted for that. And all of the deductions appeared on his, on his pay stub. So he's expecting that, he was expecting that when he contacts, and then the, 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 he was let go from that, uh, from that job because the employer did not have much money. The business was, uh, was not very successful and the employer couldn't afford it anymore. And then sometime later, uh, he contacted the social security uh, office and was expecting that there was going to be a certain amount of earnings or a certain amount of credit, which he had already earned from his job, including the job at this employer. And it turns out that that money wasn't there. And he realized that what happened was is that his employer had gone ahead and had deducted the money from, uh, from his paycheck as he was supposed to, but never sent the money into the IRS or never sent the money into the Social Security uh, Administration. And so as far as the Social Security Administration is concerned, there's no record of him having earned that amount of money, which should be the credit for him when he, uh, when he retires or whatever it is. So he wanted to know what does Halacha say in terms of can he go ahead and uh, take his W-2s, show them to the IRS, or show them to Social Security Administration, which demonstrates that he earned money and money was deducted from his check towards his, uh, his Social Security account. And then if it happens to be that the, the Social Security Administration decides to go after his employer, well, that's too bad for him because he should have sent that money in anyways. So uh, he went ahead and he uh, uh, pocketed the money for himself and uh, too bad, uh, too bad on him. Or is this what we call a Mesira? Is this involved, would that involve informing on somebody to the government because you're telling the government that this person, that this employer did not send in the money? So that was a question which, uh, which we dealt, uh, which, we, uh, which we received. So my initial thinking was, uh, I put in uh, something, sometimes I, I overthink things uh, with a little bit too much lambdas. So I said that my, uh, my, uh, my knee-jerk reaction was, now listen, what the employer did is, it's not called Geneva, it's not called theft, it's called mazik. Mazik meaning damages. Why is it called damages rather than theft? Because ultimately what the, the loss which the employee is going to suffer is, he was expecting that he's going to make, let's just say for, num- for simplicity's sake, he thought he was going to be getting upon retirement $1,000 a month. And now the Social Security Association will only send him $750 a month. So it's not as if the money is coming out of his pocket. It's damaging him in the sense that he's not going to be able to collect the same earnings. He's not going to be able to collect the same amount at some point later on, but it's not actually uh, the uh, money which was taken from him. 
So then this is where now the analysis uh, begins. So here now we have our sheet over here that appears on the screen. Okay. So here is the, uh, the, uh, the first Shiloh. So we're going to do Shiloh number one, Shiloh number two, and then get back to our Shiloh about the employer and the employee with the social security money. So here it says, this is from the Meshiv Halacha. Meshiv Halacha is, uh, his name is, I think it's Yechiel Tauber. He is a, uh, an Av based in, in Muncie, Muncie, New York. And he has lots of, uh, you know, many Choshimish Mishpachailas, obviously. And he writes usually uh, short little, uh, you know, pieces about it with some, uh, some basic analysis. So this is his Shaila. He says, Chanut HaMocheres Shochanot Varonot. So you've got a furniture store. Okay, Jew owns a furniture store, Ukidome, and something which is similar. And he delivers the merchandise to his uh, to his customers uh, by when he has two uh, delivery guys. Yehudi Ulhavdogoy, one one delivery guy is Jewish, and the other delivery guy is not Jewish. The Harbe Pamin, many times, Hakona Shu Yisrael, many many times the customers who are Jews. No same tip, that's the word there, tip, so the customer, upon a good delivery, so he gives, let's say, $20 to the, or $40 to the, uh, to the Jewish delivery guy, and the homeowner, the, uh, the customer says, you keep half of it for yourself and give the other half to the, to the non-Jew. So that's usually what happens. So what's that? Let's say, so the Jew takes the money, takes the $20, and he plans on sharing it together with the non-Jew, the other delivery guy, and he just gets distracted. He gets a phone call or something like that, or they're in a rush because they're running behind schedule. And by the time he gets out to the truck, so he completely forgot that he has the money there. So, and he doesn't give it to the non-Jew. So now what does he do with this money? Does he go ahead and return the money? Now, now let's say he didn't give it to the non-Jew, and then the non-Jew is fired, the non-Jew quits, the non-Jew just disappears. So he can't track down this non-Jew anymore to go ahead and give the non-Jew this tip money. So now his question is, what do I do with the tip money, which had originally been earmarked for the non-Jew? Do I go back to the customer? Since I can't deliver the tip money now, do I go ahead and give it back to the customer? Um, okay, let's just, let's just leave it at that. So the question is, what does he do? Is he allowed to keep that tip money for himself now that the non-Jew isn't there to be, to be able to receive it? Or does he have to go back to the customer and return what we'll call the unused part of the tip and give that back to the, uh, to the, uh, to the, uh, the balabas? So that's the question. So the way, he, the way he responds is, on top, he gives like a one or two sentence answer to the question. And then in the bottom, in the footnotes, he elaborates on the principles involved. So a simple answer is, So number one is, the Jewish delivery guy doesn't have to go running to search for the non-Jewish delivery guy, in order to, to, uh, to give it to him. And we'll see why. I'll, we'll talk about why, really. And I'm sorry that this, uh, this print didn't come out so good in the, uh, the, the screenshot, which I took it from. So the safer itself didn't scan well into the thing initially. So that's why it's bad. He says, But what he does have to do is he has to go back to the customer and he has to return the surplus money to the customer. 
the Hamos Nishar Bishus Hakona because that money remained in the possession of the customer. Meaning, even though the customer gave him the money and said, You keep half for yourself and give the other half to uh, to the non-Jew, that money which the, the Jewish delivery guy had, that, that always remained the customer's money. And therefore, if at any point it cannot be delivered to the intended non-Jewish delivery guy, so then it goes back to the owner, which is the customer. And therefore, the money has to go back there. Now, what's the basis of this? Now, um, right, so now what, what, what is the basis of this? So uh, in the footnotes, so if Tauber goes in and he references this Sif and Shulchan a parallel Sif and Shulchan So this is Simon Kufpei Gimel Sif Tes, and it says as follows. And we're jumping, it's the end of the Simon over here, but he says the same thing is true. Ruvain owes money to a, uh, let's say, uh, his landscaper. So the landscaper came, or the guy, the snow removal, because it's wintertime. So the, uh, the, uh, so Ruvain owes money to his snow removal guy, but Ruvain is going out of town. He's, uh, the, the skies in Eretz Yisrael opened up, so he's now going to Eretz Yisrael for the next uh, two months, let's say. So he's just saying he won't, he won't be around, and he wants to make sure that the money gets to the, uh, to the snow removal guy. So Vinasam Lechavero Lefaro, and so Ruvain went ahead and gave the money for the snow removal guy to his friend, to his neighbor. He said, listen, next time you see the snow removal guy driving down the street, do me a favor and give him the money and tell them that this is the amount that I owe him. And the neighbor says, sure, it'd be my pleasure to go enjoy your trip. Here's a dollar for uh, Sheikh Mitzvah money. And then the non-Jew, let's say the snow removal guy never shows up again. Uh, uh, he, he's not here now. He never shows up anywhere. He remains, uh, he just disappears. He's never in the, in the neighborhood again. So what does the neighbor do with that money? Is he allowed to keep the money now? Because uh, seemingly Ruven gave it up. Maybe we should consider it to be like lost money, which belongs to the non-Jew. And if it's lost money, which belongs to the non-Jew, so why can't the neighbor go ahead and keep it for himself? Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. So the Allah is, Yachzer Ruven. So the luck is, is that whenever Reuven gets back from Eretz Yisrael, so the neighbor will go ahead and he has to return the money to Reuven. Why does he have to turn the money to Reuven? Why don't we say that when Reuven gave the money, we'll just call it to Shimon. When Reuven gave the money to Shimon and said, I want you to give this to the snow removal guy, why don't we use the principle of Zechia? The principle of Zechia means that I could acquire something on behalf of somebody else. So I could go ahead and I could take um, uh, Mel could go ahead and give me some uh, um, tomatoes and say, listen, do me a favor, uh, acquire these on behalf of the cones. They love having salad on Shabbos and I have extra tomatoes and I want you to acquire it on behalf of the cones. So I can lift up those tomatoes and have in mind that I'm acquiring it on behalf of the cones and it actually belongs to the cones. That's now legally, halachically, the, the cones tomato. So why doesn't the same principle apply over here? When Ruvain, the homeowner, gave the money to Shimon, the neighbor, and said, I want you to go ahead and give this to the landscaper. So why don't we say that the principle of, of Zechiah says that the money already belongs to the landscaper? So the answer to that is that there's a rule, Ein that although I could acquire something from Mel, on behalf of the cones, I can't acquire something from Mel on behalf of non-Jews. 
the principles which allow zechiyah to work, which is really shlichus, which is really agency. So agency from a halachic perspective is a principle which is limited to Jews. It doesn't extend to non-Jews. And therefore, the money never became the property of the uh, of the snow removal guys. And since it was never theirs, so it always remained Ruvain's money. So if it, if it ever turns out that I can't deliver the money to its intended destination, so Ruvain retains ownership of that money, and therefore it's his for the it, it, it has to be returned to him. So that would seem to be pretty a pretty straightforward thing that when the uh, the customer gave the Jewish delivery guy the tip money and said, listen, I want you to give half of the money to the non-Jew. So if it turns out that he does, can't give half of the money to the non-Jew, he forgot, and then the non-Jew is no longer around, so that money belongs, seemingly that money is going to belong to the, uh, to the homeowner, to the customer, and he's got to give it back. But this is not such a simple matter, because there's actually a, what would seem to be a dissenting opinion on, on this. And this we turn to what, uh, what I have over here listed as source number two, which is the rush. Um, and it says as follows. He says that um, so he gives, I don't want to read the whole thing just because of time. Um, so he says the case was that similar type of case that Ruvain bought something from a non-Jew and the non-Jew, the Ruvain said, oh, I, I can't believe it. I forgot my wallet or my credit card isn't going through, whatever it is. Ruvain didn't pay. And the non-Jew gave him, said, okay, that's not a problem. You could go ahead and you could pay me tomorrow. He trusted him. So Ruvain went ahead and um, Ruvain had to suddenly uh, travel out of town. So he gives the money to Shimon. And he says to Shimon, listen, do me a favor and go pay the non-Jew for the merchandise which I bought from him yesterday. And Shimon said, no problem. And the non-Jew also, he disappeared. We don't know where he is anymore. And now Shimon has the money. So Shimon has uh, Ruvain's money, which had been destined to uh, reach this non-Jewish uh, uh, merchant. So what is this Rabbeinu Ephraim? The Russians pointing at Rabbeinu Ephraim. What does he say? So he says as follows. He says, In the event that it's clear that the non-Jew disappeared and he gave up on this money. He doesn't plan on getting this money anymore. For whatever reason, he went ahead and he had to skip town. So we say, he says, according to the opinion increases, which says, somebody gives a gift to a friend. And the uh, intended recipient says, I'm not interested in this gift and I don't want it. So the Allah is called a so whoever goes ahead and grabs the money first now gets to keep it. And the original giver of the gift, the benefactor, cannot say, listen, if the recipient of the gift does not want to receive the gift, that I had, when I sent the money to that recipient, I had the following in mind. That I sent it only only with the intention that he's going to accept it. And in the event that he does not want to accept it, I want to give back. So we don't assume that that's what the benefactor had in mind. And we say that when he sent the gift, he had in mind to relinquish all of his rights to that money immediately. And once it turns out that the recipient doesn't want it, so then it becomes Hefker effectively. And once it becomes Hefker, so whoever grabs it first goes out and gets to keep it. 
So what do we see? The main principle is, what we want to take from here is, that as soon as you go ahead and you send the money to an intended uh, recipient, so you relinquish all of your rights to that money, and even if it turns out that the recipient doesn't want it or cannot receive it because he skipped town or he disappeared, either way, you've given up all of your rights to that money, and therefore, uh, it's available for whoever wants it. Yeah, but it says, Isn't that assuming Havero is Jewish? Um, not necessarily. I mean, you could, you could argue that, but Havero uh, uh, would just be standard uh, language of just giving it to somebody else, I think. I'm not sure that uh, I would make a duke out of that as of yet. And then he says, uh, he brings his support for this idea of Ephraim. He says, Gabi he says, we say the same thing regarding a Shor HaNiskal. So Shor HaNiskal, if you remember, it's been a while, I know, since we did Baba Kama in, uh, in Dafyomi, but Shor HaNiskal is when my Shor went ahead and gored, let's say, um, uh, killed somebody. So therefore, uh, being that my Shor uh, is, uh, goes on trial, and when my Shor is convicted, so the, uh, the uh, base is going to go ahead and execute the Shor. That's what they do with the shore which kills somebody. Now, you have, now let's say, so there were two witnesses. So uh, Bob and Art went ahead and testified that my shore ran somebody over and killed them. Okay, so based in issues of verdict, then my shore is going to have to be, is going to have to be stoned. That's the Niska part. Then it turns out that uh, Steve and Mel come along and they say to the they say to Basin, how could Bob and Art testify that they saw Shaffles Shore kill anybody on Thursday? They were with us in Omaha on Thursday, so they couldn't have possibly seen something like that. So we discredit Bob and Art as witnesses in that specific manner called Adim Zomamin, that they can't possibly have testified because they weren't where they claimed to have been. Where what happens? So now the verdict to kill my shore is overturned. So what happens when Basin goes out and overturns the verdict that my shore should be killed? So anybody who grabs the shore now gets to keep it. Why? Because because a similar principle that once the initial verdict came out by, from Basin saying that my shore had to be killed, so I effectively relinquish all of my ownership rights to that shore to such a degree that even when the verdict is subsequently overturned, I've already been mafkir my shore, and anybody wants to take it can take it. And I can't, if somebody goes ahead and runs off with it, I can't go ahead and take it back from them, demand that they give it back to me. So we see the principle over here, which the Rabbeinu Ephraim is trying to demonstrate is that once you release something from your, uh, your possession, it's assumed that you are now relinquishing all of your rights and all of your ownership to that, and therefore, at whatever point it now is open for the taking, it becomes open season. The phrase is, first come, first serve, and whoever grabs it, they get to keep it. So this is at odds with what we learned in Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch said that the original owner retains his rights to it all along until it actually uh, uh, reaches the recipient. And if it doesn't reach the recipient, so then... It goes back to the original owner. And now we find out that that's not necessarily the case. Rabbi Ephraim disagrees and says, no, once you, once you, give, it up, once you uh, uh, give it to somebody else uh, for delivery, you've given up all of your rights and privileges 
on that money and ownership of that money or that possession, and it's no longer yours. Now the rush, he rejects this. And he says, um, I don't want to read the whole thing. Um, let's go over here. Uh, we'll just read this part. So he says, Aval, so he's saying, why is the case of the gift? Uh, sorry, why is the case of paying the non-Jew uh, for the merchandise which you bought on credit? Why is that different than the case of the Shor and Iskal? So he says, Hacha, Lahava Hefker. He says over here, when the Jewish customer sends money with his neighbor to pay the non-Jewish merchant, so he wasn't making his money Hefker at all. Because even after Reuven gave the money to Shimon and said, oh, you're going downtown anyways, will you take this money and drop it off at the store where I bought this couch? Even after he did so, he still has not been mafkir the money. He hasn't given up all of his rights and ownership of that money. How do we know? Because he have Amar Reuven to namely because if Reuven calls up Shimon and says, you know what? I just got into a car accident. I need that $1,000 to, uh, to make repairs on my car. And I'll just have to let the non-Jew uh, run after me for a couple of months to, uh, to collect it before he gets the, the money because I need the money for something else. So Reuven would be allowed to go ahead and do so. He could demand that Shimon return to him the money. So So Shimon would certainly be obligated to return the money to, uh, to Reuven because it's still Reuven's money. Everybody would agree to that, the Russia asserts. And therefore, and being that if at any point Reuven calls Shimon and says, listen, don't give the money to the non-Jew anymore. I'll hold on to it and give it back to me. Since he has the right to do so, it's evident that so he never was Mesiach Das. He never gave up his uh, focus and attention on that money. And he did not make it into Hefker at all. He gave it to Shimon only with the intention that Shimon would go ahead and deliver it to him on his behalf. Uh, and in the event that for whatever reason Shimon cannot deliver it to the non-Jewish recipient, so it would have to be, uh, it would have to go back to Ruvain because it's Ruvain's money. So we have over here is the rush is now telling us a principle. He says that if I go ahead and I give somebody else money to deliver it to whatever the destination is, whether Jew or non-Jew, so there's two different scenarios. There could be one scenario where it's really my money and Shimon is acting on my behalf to deliver it for me, but it remains all along my money. So that if, any, if, if at any point I call Shimon and say, I changed my mind, I want you to return the money to me, Shimon will be obligated to do so. Or you could have a scenario where Reuven gives the money to Shimon and he never expects to get, get it back ever again. He's essentially mafkirat, he gives it up and the money is gone, uh, is gone forever. So there's two different scenarios. So in the case that where, where uh, if I give the money to Shimon and I'm mafkirat, I never plan on getting it back. So then if the recipient doesn't take the money, it's hefker and kol zacha. In the event that I never actually relinquish my rights or my ownership of that money, I just gave it to Shimon to do me a favor to deliver it for me, then the Allah is going to be that it's always my money. And since it's always my money, therefore, if it, if it ever cannot be delivered to the recipient, so then it has to be returned to me because it always remained my money. So what distinguishes between the two cases? Um, 
Is it something uh, that Ruvain said when he handed the money over to Shimon? Um, so, no, it's in the first part of, uh, if you go back to, to, to the part you just read from, the first couple of lines talk about why the Shuran Iskal is different. So, hold on, let me. Uh, I want my cow back. Right, but there, there in, in that case, in the case of the cow, so once there was a verdict, we assume that you, it's all based on uh, what's called an Anan Sahadi. It's based on what we assume people are, uh, have in mind. So if you get a verdict from Basin saying, pronouncing that your shore has been convicted of murder one and it's going to be executed. So if they, and they already have the shore in jail. They already have it in prison. So at that point, you say, you know what? Okay, what am I supposed to do? It was a bad shore. It's now going to get executed. And I never, I never expect to get it back because how often do you have a case of Adim Zomamin? So since it's an unusual occurrence to, uh, to happen, so that's why we're, we're certain in that case that the person would actually be Mesiyach Das. He would actually give up hope. He would be Miyayish ever getting it back. And that would, be the, uh, that would be the end of it. But in a case where I'm sending the money to, uh, to be delivered, so then we would say that the, the likelihood is, is that you want, to keep it, uh, you want to keep your options open so that in the event that something happens and the money doesn't get delivered or you need that money suddenly, you would want to retain that option to be able to use that money. So there's no evidence to say that you actually mafia the money just because you gave it away. Um, so now he says, so seemingly we would have to go ahead and we, we would have to sort of make that call. But now he says, so this is now of Tauber in the, in the footnote over here. Uh, he says, He says, and I'm reading somewhere around here where the, the mouse thing is. He says, after thinking about the matter, however, nearer bar, it seems clear. The Benino Nidan, this is now talking about the, the case of the tip, where the Jewish customer gave the Jewish delivery guy $20, said $10 for you, $10 for the non-Jewish guy. And then the non-Jewish guy disappeared and he never received the money. So what, do, what does the Jewish delivery guy do with that extra $10? Uh, $10? So it says, says, that the Jewish delivery guy cannot keep the $10 for himself. Uh, for another reason. And it turns out, this is going to demonstrate, that the case of the tip is fundamentally different than the other cases that we were talking about. Why? This, what's the reason why the Jewish customer was giving a tip to the delivery guys in the first place anyways? He, he wanted to make sure that there would not be a chil Hashem in the eyes of the non-Jewish delivery guy. Because generally what you do is, it's when it's, it's industry specific, obviously, but in many industries, it's common practice to go ahead and tip the, the service guy. So if that's what they're expecting with this delivery thing is that you're going to give a nice tip. And the Jewish customer wanted to make sure that he followed this etiquette of tipping the delivery guy. Because if he doesn't tip the delivery guy and the delivery guy is expecting it, so what he's going to say is, oh, those cheap Jews. And he's going to look down upon the Jewish people that they're trying to rip them off and they're not doing something as basic as tipping the delivery guys. So that's what we think, that's what we assume the customer has in mind. Okay, for whatever reason. Now he says, I don't want to go into that. 
And being that the customer wants this $10 to go towards the purpose of creating a Kiddush Hashem, so the other Jewish delivery guy can't pocket the money for himself. That's not the purpose of the money. The purpose of the money was to create a Kiddush Hashem, not so that you should be able to buy yourself another burger body. That was never the intent. Because the, the customer never wanted to relinquish his ownership of that money. Because he wanted to be the one who generates this Kiddush Hashem. And it's not similar at all to the case of Rabbeinu Ephraim, where you bought something on credit and now you're sending money the, which is payment for the which is payment for the merchandise to the non-Jew because you owe it to him. So in that case, it's fundamentally different. Because over there, the reason why you were sending the money to the non-Jew is because you bought merchandise from him. So if you buy merchandise from him, obviously you owe him the thousand dollars of merchandise which you just bought. Because the non-Jew is saying, listen, here's the invoice. You owe me a thousand dollars because I delivered to you a thousand dollars worth of merchandise. Dimitsido, and from as far as the customer is concerned, it doesn't make a difference whether or not the non-Jew remembers that he's owed that thousand dollars or he forgets. It's completely relevant. I, I, I don't really care whether the non-Jew gets the money or not. And therefore, uh, it's possible to say that as soon as I send the money, so I've taken care of my responsibility. And in the event that uh, something happens, the non-Jew doesn't get it. I don't really care. Avakan, the Vani who wrote the Dafka Shitim Lahagoi. But over here, it's clear that in, in the case of the tip, the customer wants a non-Jew to end up with those $10. And he did not give up any of his rights to that money whatsoever. And therefore, Vizet Pasha, he says, this is obvious. And therefore, in that specific case, he is going to, the delivery guy is going to have to, if he can't, give the $10 tip to the non-Jew, he's going to have to return it back to the customer. Okay? So that is step number one in, in our analysis. And now we move to step number two. So this is the, from a different safer. It's called Kisei Mishpat. This safer is written by the same author, just a different safer which he, he wrote. And here, we get a little bit closer to our case. You see the name of the, uh, the simon is, says, Din Balchanus so this is talking about a merchant who collects sales tax and then never sends it to the government. He just keeps it. He, he, all the customers come in, they all pay whatever the sales tax is, and then he's, he, he keeps it for himself. And he does not, uh, he's hoping that the government will never uh, audit him or never come after him looking for that money. So now he says, so what's the Shiloh? So says, so you have a store which sells merchandise which is subject to sales tax. And the way the tax is collected is every uh, purchase which is made. So he's going to collect a certain percentage of that towards the tax. In parentheses there, you see his best effort to go ahead and transliterate sales tax. That's what he does. I don't know what accent that is, but it's a sales tax. Tax. And then at the end of the year, 
at the end of the year, you have to go ahead, the, the merchant has to send money to the city. It's a city sales tax. So he is obligated to go ahead and send that money to the city. Vine Karamikra, and it happened once, Shabala Chanus, Sagar Chanuso. So the store owner went ahead and he closed the store in November. So he had been collecting sales tax from his customers from January to November. November, he shuts down the store. And as a result of that, he decides, listen, they've got nothing over me anymore because I've shut down my store anyways. And I'm not going to pay them the sales tax. I'm just going to keep it for myself. And people, for however people found out about it, but people found out that that's what he did. So now the question is, the shayla is, so is he obligated to go ahead and find, uh, uh, track down all of his customers and return to them the sales tax? Because he only collected the sales tax because it was supposed to go to the city. That's the only reason why the customers paid. If it turns out that he never paid the money to the city, so why should he be able to keep the sales tax? That's my money. It's not his money. And then he says, just to make the, you know, aggravate us a little bit more about these things, about, about the dishonesty. He says, What happens if it's clear this guy never planned, he has a store, and he never planned on paying the sales tax to the city. He collects it, and he had no intention ever to go ahead and, uh, and, uh, and send it in. He had all sorts of shtick, which he was planning on doing to get out of sending the sales tax money to the city. So is he allowed to collect sales tax from the customers when he knows that he never plans on sending the money to the city? Is that allowed or not? So here he goes at, and he, he says, he begins when this truth also with essentially the same analysis Shulchan Aruch, source number one, which we had above, and then the Rush, quoting Rabbeinu Ephraim, and the Rush's distinction about giving up the money or not. And then after repeating all of that, uh, all of that analysis, so he says as follows. He says, It's always nice when you read this. You spend uh, you know, a couple of hours reading through five paragraphs and looking up the sources and making sure that you understand it all. And then after all that effort and getting it clear in your mind, then he comes along and he says, but in our case, none of that stuff is really relevant anyways. Send me on a wild goose chase over here, searching all this stuff and trying to understand Rabbi Noah Ephraim and the Rush, and now you tell me it's not really so relevant anyways. Why? Because he says, and Steve, you'll tell me if, uh, if this is wrong, or if anybody else knows, but uh, Steve would, may, may know better than everybody else here. He says, because according to the law, the customer is the one who really owes the sales tax to the city. And what the way it's structured is, is that the city appoints the merchant rather than rely on every customer being honest in saying exactly what they purchased and sending in all that sales tax money to the city directly from the customer. So what the, the way it's structured is, is that the store is going to collect it on behalf of the city. And the reason what the incentive that the merchant has to go ahead and do all of this is, wherever this is taking place, is the merchant is allowed to hold on to all that sales tax money until the end of the year, and he's allowed to use that money. So that's revenue which is coming in, which he's allowed to use, which he has access to till the end of the year. And he could use that money if he wants. He just has to make sure that he pays by the end of the year. So what does that mean for our purpose? The nimza turns out 
that as soon as I, the customer, go ahead and give this dishonest merchant the sales tax money, the 3%, let's say, so I, the customer, I have essentially satisfied my obligation to the city. I followed their instructions. Their instructions are, when you go into the store and you buy food items, so you have to pay 3% sales tax on that, and we want you to go ahead and give it to the storekeeper. Okay, I, t- I took care of my obligation because I paid the 3% to the storekeeper. And therefore, I am off the hook as far as my obligation is concerned because I did exactly what they expect me to do. And as far as the way it's structured, so the merchant has the right to use that money. As we said, he's allowed to hold on to it until the end of the year. And he's able to go ahead and use it all the way until the designated time when he's got to go ahead and he's got to send in the uh, the sales tax which he collected over the past year. Well, at, at least in the United States, the 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 uh, the situation is similar, except that they have to pay it much more often than once a year. Once a year, okay. Uh, you know, um, okay. but but he has it for that month. Okay. The, the main he, thing is that, that the, the, the he, has, he, has, he has it for a period of time, that depending upon the volume of sales, it could be a month or it could be a week. But, mm-hmm. but he does have it for a period of time. Gotcha. Okay, good. So he says, Yeah, we said. So it turns out, that when I go into the store and I purchase the merchandise, and I pay the sales tax. So that money now belongs to the merchant. I, that money is no longer mine. I've paid my sales tax. So in this case, it's not like I gave it to a shliach. And now what does the shliach do with it if the recipient isn't available anymore to receive it? Over here, when I gave it to the merchant, I have completely satisfied my obligation of paying a sales tax. And that money is not mine. That's the ultimate of being meyayish or being meyayish das, never receiving that money again. And therefore, if the merchant decides at that point, he's not going to go ahead and send the money into this city. The, the, the theft which is taking place is not, is not the merchant from me, the customer. The theft which is taking place is the merchant is now stealing from the government. He's not sending them the money that they are supposed to receive, but that's not my money. My money as a customer, I already paid my sales tax. I never expected to get that back. I didn't give it. The, the, the merchant isn't my shliach to give the money to the, uh, to, to, to the city. The merchant acquires the money for himself, and then he has an obligation to the city. So since I have paid my, uh, my sales tax obligation, so I'm clearly off the hook in that case. I have given up all hope of ever receiving that money again. And therefore, I'm not, uh, in, in that case, He's absolutely certain that it is not going to be, uh, it's, uh, uh, I'm not going to be able to get the money back. Okay, so, so far we have two cases. We had the case of the tip money. In the case of the tip money, we said that in the event that the intended recipient is no longer available, the money goes back to the balabas. In that case, he hasn't given up his rights to the money. And if it cannot reach the intended recipient, it goes back to the balabas. Now we have the case of sales tax 
where we see where we say that once you gave the money to the merchant, you've satisfied your obligation. You were mesiachtas. You gave up on ever receiving that money back again. And if it turns out that he wants to rip off the government, that's between him and the government. But you can't go back to the merchant and say, "Hey, if you're not submitting that money to the government, give me that money back." That you don't have a right to do because you are mesiachtas. That's the case of Rabbeinu Ephraim. So now let's bring it back down, back around to our original Shiloh. So original Shiloh was the employer who deducted money for Social Security and then never sent the money into the Social Security Administration. So which of the two categories are we going to put this into? So that is that that, that becomes a Shiloh. And that's now it's taken us all this time, it's taken us these 43 minutes or so, just to go ahead and put together the information that we need for the Shiloh. And it's important because now we know that there's two different ways of, of looking at it. And what it turns out is, just because of the time, so I'll just uh, jump us uh, straight to it. So what it turns out is that this is actually a third scenario, which doesn't fit into either one of those previous two cases. Why is this the third case? Now, now the, the uh, Rav Tauber actually alludes to this in some of the different scenarios which he discusses with regards to the sales tax. But over here, it's a different thing altogether. Here, it actually is theft that the employer is doing from the employee. In other words, when I go ahead and I am hired by, uh, by you uh, and I'm going to earn uh, you know, uh, $40,000 for the year, that's how, much, uh, that's how much you're going to pay me. So uh, everybody knows that when you get your first paycheck, when you get your first, first monthly paycheck, it's not going to be $40,000 divided by 12 because you, the employer, you're going to go ahead and you're going to deduct from my paycheck all of those various deductions which they do. You know, uh, uh, you know, if it's health insurance or if it's social security or whatever those very uh, the the, in, the the federal tax and the state tax and all those deductions. So you go ahead, you the employer, you deduct all of that on my behalf. So the truth is, is really it's my money, and I'm just having you make the deductions and send it in on my behalf. But ultimately, that money is mine. So when you go ahead for the entire year, you are taking out of my paycheck money to go to social security you are sending in my money to go to the social security administration so that eventually i'll be able to benefit from that money so the only reason you were allowed to deduct that money from my paycheck was only because you're going to be sending into social security administration if you take that money from my paycheck my forty thousand dollars which i'm supposed to earn and you don't send the money into the social security administration you're stealing from me you're not my shliach for anything that's my money that you're going ahead and I'm just, I, I'm asking you, I have my shift in a certain sense, but that's my money that you are taking. And the only reason I allow you to make that deduction from my monthly paycheck is only because that's the way the system normally works is that you do so because you're going to be sending that money into the Social Security Administration. It's easier for everybody involved if it just comes right off of the paycheck, it's deducted right off of the paycheck. But if it turns out that you're not giving that money to the Social Security Administration, you had no right to deduct that money from my paycheck because I earned that because I work for you and you owe me $40,000 a year. The fact that deductions are made, that is to, for my benefit or that's to, to help me go ahead and cover my, uh, my, uh, my, my responsibilities. But if you take all of those deductions, you don't send anything in for federal taxes. You don't send anything in for state taxes. You don't send anything in for social security and you pocket all of that money for yourself. That's outright theft. You're not stealing for the government in that case. You're actually stealing from me in that case. 
And therefore, in such a case, so uh, the, 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 as far as the original Shaila is concerned, so we told the fellow, listen, what you have over here, the case which you're dealing with over here is your employer has taken your money without permission. The first thing you should do is tell him, listen, you've taken money from me without my permission and I want it back. And in the event that he says, whatever excuse he gives, why he doesn't, he, he thinks he doesn't have to give it back. So the proper way to handle this is initially, at least, is to go to, is go to Basin. The way we adjudicate monetary matters between Jews is to go to Basin. In the event that the person is delinquent, he's uh, reluctant, there's no way he's ever going to show up in Basin. So then you may be able to get permission to go to the authorities. But to go to the, to the IRS or to go to government authorities initially, to go ahead and say, hey, he never paid me, uh, he never submitted my money for Social Security, and uh, he deducted it from my account, so that would not be allowed. That would not be allowed, and the first thing you need to do is you need to contact the basin in order to be able to, uh, to, get, it, to, to get the money back. But obviously, what I found uh, exciting about that is how each of these similar, seemingly similar cases, actually each one ends up being in a different category with a different set of uh, halachas associated with it. So that's the uh, certainly the 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 excitement which I uh, which I enjoy most out of uh, out of Chol Shemishpat is that type of uh, you know uh, seeing all of those things. Uh, Rabbi Shaffel? Yes. So um, a- actually, I'm aware of a situation like this oh, yeah? that, that happened to someone that I know, and actually, when this happens, if they don't send the money in, what? What happens is that the Social Security Administration actually has no record of your wages altogether. So, right. so then, um, when it comes time for you to start getting your Social Security, Social Security. thing, um, and you go there and they tell you the Social Security Administration tells you you your X number of best years, your average salary for your X number of best years, which is how they calculate your social security thing. It turns out that it's incorrect. Mm -hmm. So uh, in order for you to correct that, I'm not even talking about getting the money back from the person, but they actually have the wrong, the social security administration has the wrong figures so mm-hmm. once you go in and show them your pay stubs, you haven't made a complaint against the person. You right. just said that you have, you, Social Security, have the wrong records. Here's a record of all my pay stubs. Uh-huh. And they don't have, they, they were never given those things. So it's not a matter of what I'm suggesting to you is it's not a matter of reporting this person because... At the point, at that point, you don't know why they don't have a record of this. So you go in and show them your pay stubs. So once you do that, yes, that's probably going to um, cause an investigation. But it's not. But at the point that a person finds out about it, it he he doesn't know why they don't why the Social Security Administration doesn't have the right numbers. He mm-hmm. just he's just correcting their records so i don't know i I, i'm just suggesting that it's not a matter of reporting the person it's a matter of correcting the social security administration's records right so there be the in in the case uh which which we received so the person actually he knows already because he looked it up 
you know mm -hmm. what 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 uh, what re records they have on him currently and is mm -hmm. able to see that those things were missing so here he it, it's not like he waited until retirement and then he goes back and notices that something it's not it's not adding up here he already knows uh, you know from the outset that that's uh, that that's the case but okay. uh, but yeah right 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 very good so that's uh, so i mean that, that 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 was essentially my initial argument that there are times when you have the right to pursue your rights and if it it ends up being somewhat harmful to somebody else so too bad so sad on him because there's nothing wrong with you pursuing your own rights so mm -hmm. that's what that, that was also part of my initial thinking is i should be able to go to the irs the, I, I was thinking that the irs owes me the money because I actually did the work but it turns out that that that, that aligned with my initial thinking that i thought it was really a halacha of being mazik they're mazik me in the sense that the social security isn't going to pay me what I actually have earned, what I should be paid. But it turns out that the problem occurred much earlier in time because it occurred at the time that, uh, that when he withdrew, when he took those, he deducted those social security payments and then never sent them into the government. So he had no right to take that money and then not give it to the government. So that's why it's, it's not between me and the social security. It's between me and, uh, and my, uh, my yachts of an employer, ex-employer. Right. Okay, very good. Okay, thank you. All the best, everybody.